Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, we're continuing our way through the first epistle of Paul to his colleague Timothy, 1 Timothy, and we made it all the way to chapter 6. We're kind of coming toward the end of the book now. We're looking at verses 1 through 10 today, and I'd like uh, for us to read them together before we discuss what God has to say to us in this passage. 1 Timothy 6, beginning at verse 1. Let all who are under yoke of as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, if there is a word that describes many Americans these days, I think it's the word discontent. There was a, a post on uh, CNN's website with the, the headline, American Happiness Hits Record Lows. Uh, this was uh, from early last year, in which they said, a lot of Americans are not pleased with what's going on in their daily lives, the state of our nation, or the state of our politics. And they cited a Gallup poll that has been taken consistently over 20 years, asking the same questions of people year after year, uh, asking them about the quality of life, how we feel about government, organized religion, crime, the economy, and education. And they found that in this most recent poll that was being reported that only 38% of Americans reported being satisfied, which was the lowest rating ever recorded. The article concluded by saying, Americans are less satisfied with the way things are going than at any point in the last two decades. Now, the pandemic certainly contributed to all that, but it, it seems that there is kind of a malaise that has taken hold of our nation, our culture, leaving people dissatisfied with just about everything, including the church. 
You ever heard the story about the guy who was stranded on a desert island? He was uh, lost for five years until somebody finally found him, and as the rescue boat reached the beach to, to take him back home, he was climbing in the rescue boat, and his rescuer said to him, um, we thought you were alone. We see three huts here on the beach. What's that about? He said, well, that one's my house, and that one there's my church. And they said, well, what about the third one? He said, ah, that's the church I used to go to. I mentioned a few weeks ago the rapidity with which people are becoming de-churched in the United States and how the fastest growing segment of the population are those who identify as religious nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. They aren't Protestant, they aren't Catholic, they aren't Jewish or Muslim, they are nothing. They have no religious identification at all. Now the reasons are many and complex, but it seems as if we're discontent these days with virtually everything, from what goes on in our most cherished institutions to what's going on in our personal lives. And what we're missing, I think, is what the Old Testament calls shalom. It's, an, it's a word that in Hebrew gets translated into our English Old Testament as peace, but it goes way beyond just an absence of conflict. What shalom is really all about is a sense of utter blessedness that comes from being rightly related to God, to others, and oneself. And, and I think that though Paul doesn't use the word shalom in our passage because he's writing in Greek, not in Hebrew, I think that's essentially what he's talking about. He's, a, he's exposing ways we forfeit shalom and, and let discontentment rule in our hearts. And he's showing us where true contentment can be found. As I mentioned, we're in the home stretch now of Paul's first letter to his younger colleague, Timothy. And in these last two chapters, Paul has been giving Timothy instructions that he's to give to various people in the church. And the first part of chapter 5 was all about how we are to treat older people in the church. And the last half of chapter 5, as we saw last week, was about how we're to treat uh, those who are over us in the church. The elders, those who are in charge of of the church. And now as we get to the first 10 verses of chapter 6, Paul gives us instructions about three other groups of people in the church, those who are slaves, those whose teachings deviate from the teachings of the apostles, and those who are driven by a desire for wealth. And what I want you to see here is that all three of these categories of people are apt to be discontent. Slaves are understandably apt to say, I don't like my lot in life. I deserve better. The teachers Paul addresses here are likely to say, I don't like what I've been taught. I know better. And those who want to get rich feel like they don't have enough. And they're likely to say, I demand more. And what Paul, what do, what Paul does here is, In each case, he shows us how getting what we want would actually be detrimental to us and certainly not lead to true contentment. In fact, Paul is going to show us in this passage that there's only one way to be truly content in life. Those who are truly content go deep with God. Those who are truly content go deep with God. We're talking about godliness here. It's a word that we don't often use anymore. But if you want to be truly content, You need to be godly. Paul says in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's where it's really at, Paul says. To live a godly life with contentment. Uh, Now, Paul speaks of the importance of godliness nine times in this little letter. In six chapters, 
He, he talks about godliness nine different times. So what are we really talking about here? Well, the word has to do with reverent devotion to God. It's about giving God the place in my life he deserves and living accordingly. And so godliness starts with coming into a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. Godliness begins when I recognize that I'm not so godly. In fact, I've got to come to the point of recognizing that in, in my sin, I am estranged from God. In fact, I'm born a sinner. I've inherited Adam and Eve's sinful nature. And because of that, just as Adam and Eve died spiritually in the garden that day, so I am spiritually stillborn when I come into this world. I am born in my trans transgressions and sins, and, and I don't have a real relationship with God. I'm incapable of that. I'm spiritually dead. I need to be made alive. And not only am I born with a sin nature, but even worse, I, I go on and prove that I'm a sinner by my own actions, thoughts, and words. I do things and say things and think things that are violations of God's holy law. And all of that means that not only am I estranged from God, disconnected from him, don't have a real relationship with him, but I deserve his wrath. I deserve his judgment. And worst of all, I'm helpless to help myself. I, I can't save myself. I can't get myself out of this predicament, not even by trying real hard to do good works or going to church. But the good news of the gospel is that God loved us so much that he didn't want to leave us in that hopeless and helpless condition. And so to remedy that, he sent Jesus to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He sent his eternal son, whose life was of infinite worth, to come into this world a baby, to become one of us, so that he could represent humanity. Except that because of the way he was born, he was born without a sin nature. And he, in essence, lived the life that all of us were meant to live. A life that was in right relationship with God, loving God, serving God, obeying God every step of the way. And all he ever did throughout his life was heal the sick and feed the hungry and calm storms on the sea and cast out demons and even raise the dead. He taught the most marvelous teaching the world had ever heard. And for that, jealous religious leaders nailed him to a cross, calling him a blasphemer. Well, guess what? It's, it's only blasphemy if you call yourself the son of God and you're not. But he was. He didn't deserve to die. He had no crimes to pay for, but he willingly gave his life on the cross for us because he realized that was the only way to make satisfactory payment for the sins of all mankind, to give his life of infinite worth as the ransom that sets us free, to pay the debt that we owed but could never pay. They nailed him to that cross. He died and they laid him in a stone-cold tomb. But on the third day, God raised him in power from the grave, victor over sin and death, so that now he's able to offer forgiveness of sin, a new relationship with God, and eternal life beside to all who put their faith and trust in him. When I've trusted in Christ, not only is the offense of my sin removed, but I've been reconciled to God, and I have the opportunity now having come alive in Christ to live a whole new life, connected to God as I never was before. By the power of the Spirit who lives in me, I begin to live the life that Jesus himself would live if Jesus were to live my life. As we're so fond of saying here at Bayside, Jesus gave his life for us 
in order to give his life to us, to live his life through us. And that's where godliness, living a life that goes deep with God begins. And here in his letter to Timothy, Paul connects that godliness to things like living a peaceful, quiet, and dignified life that honors God. He, he connects it to the demeanor of a Christian woman who does good works, or the good behavior of children who care for their widowed mother. It's agreement with the teachings of Jesus. It's a contentment that comes from knowing God will provide for us. Godliness is a life well-lived in reverent dependence on God. And Paul says in chapter 4, train yourself to live like that. Train yourself in godliness because physical training has some value. But training, training in godliness has value for all things, for this life and for the life to come. And he says here in chapter 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's where it's at. That's what life is about. Those who are truly content go deep with God. And someone might say, hey, wait a minute now. Are you telling me that to be content, I have to be a Christian? Are you saying that non-Christians can't be content? Because I'm telling you right now that I know some non-Christians who are more content than some Christians I know. And I would answer, yeah, certainly it's possible for some non-Christians to experience contentment in some aspects of their lives. And yes, there are some Christians who forfeit contentment that should be theirs because they insist on living independently of God, living in their own strength and doing things on their own in their own wisdom and in their own, in, in their own effort, thinking that they can get what they need out of life that way. That's called the flesh, by the way, living according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. The case I'm making is that if you want genuine shalom, that sense of blessedness that comes from being utterly right with God, with others, and with oneself, you'll only find that if you go deep with God. You know that you're in Christ and you live with a deep and abiding moment-by-moment -moment dependence on him to live his life through you. And why is that the path to true contentment? Well, here in the first 10 verses of 1 Timothy 6, he, he shows us how when I go deep with God, I'll come to recognize three realities that lead to true contentment. The first of those realities that I'll come to recognize in Christ is that in Christ, I have the highest purpose. In Christ, I have the highest purpose one can ever have. Now, he, he begins the passage here by talking to slaves in the first two verses. He, and who would be more apt to be discontent in life than a slave? And as much as a third of the population of the entire Roman Empire in the first century were slaves. And so that means that there were a lot of slaves who became Christians. This was not the brutal plantation slavery of the old American South. Yes, there were some slaves, laborers who were abused by their masters. No question about that. But for the most part, you wouldn't recognize a slave on the street if you saw one because they mingled with the general population. And, and they carried out occupations like doctor, lawyer, teacher. Still, the point is you were a slave. Your life was not your own. And I'm sure that most every slave resented their lot in life thinking to themselves, if not saying it out loud, I deserve better. What does Paul say about this? Verse 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, as slaves, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So suppose you're a slave and you become a Christian, and in your church that you attend, 
there are no slaves and masters. Everybody's one in Christ. And, and you, you, as a slave, even have the opportunity to rise through the ranks to become an elder of your church, and you're beginning to enjoy the taste of being in charge for a change. But then you have to go back to work. And, and you go back to work with a, a, a chip of discontentment on your shoulder, kind of like the disgruntled auto assembly line workers I once read about who, because they had a beef with the management and they felt that they were not getting a fair shake, they, they would purposely slough off on the job, which essentially sabotaged every automobile that was coming off their assembly line. Well, here's this slave, you know, giving his master less than his best effort and, and you know, starting to give him attitude. The thought, I deserve better, just grinds on his soul and his master thinks, man, he's had a bad attitude ever since he became a Christian. That God of theirs is nothing but trouble. How's that working for you? Or what if you're a slave and your owner is also a Christian? He says in verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach these things. So the situation here is at, at church, the slave and the, the master go to church together. In the church, there is no slave or free. We're all one in Christ. And, and so they act like brothers at church. They're fellowshipping together and worshiping together and taking the Lord's Supper together. And then Monday morning rolls around and, and the, the slave reports for work thinking, well, I don't have to be so formal and uptight with the boss the way the other slaves do. He's my bro, man. We're in tight. And the boss says, hey, get to work, will you? And the slave says, lighten up, bro. I, I thought you, you, you love Jesus. You should go easy on me. Yeah, either way, Paul's saying, how's that really working for you? If you're disrespectful of your non-Christian boss, you'll be bad advertising for the faith. You'll even give God himself a bad name. And if you stop giving your best and serving your Christian boss, you're just hurting your brother financially. But there's a better way. Godliness with contentment is great gain. When you go deep with God, you can be content even in a less than ideal work situation. Instead of giving my minimal effort and showing disrespect, thinking I deserve better, what if realizing that I am in Christ, a dearly loved child of God and an ambassador of Jesus, I go off to work each day with a higher sense of purpose than just keeping the boss off my back and bringing home a paycheck. In fact, I have the highest purpose of all, to give glory to God everywhere I go. Jesus himself said the greatest two things you can do with your life are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's what you can do even as a slave by respecting your boss and giving your best work. Take that attitude to work that can only come from one who goes deep with God and instead of having the boss turned off to the faith, maybe his interest will be piqued trying to figure out why is it that all my best workers are Christians? He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled, so that the name of Jesus and the gospel will be honored instead. And if your boss is already a believer, giving him your respect and your best effort will likely 
lead to bigger profits for him and, and what benefits him should give you joy as his brother or sister. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. Serve them all the better, he says in verse two, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. You see, when I go deep with God, I will love God with all my heart and bring him glory, and I will love my brother as myself. One who goes deep with God can go to work every day with the highest purpose of all. Richard Halverson was the former pastor of the Fourth Presbyterian Church of Bethesda, Maryland, and then he became the chaplain of the United States Senate. And Dr. Halverson was famous for a particular benediction that he would give. At the end of almost every sermon, every service, he would raise his hands over the congregation and give what he called a benediction about serving wherever you go. It goes like this. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of his spirit, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, his power, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You see, those who are truly content go deep with God. And when you go deep with God, you begin to realize that in Christ, I have the highest purpose. But here's the second reality that you, you come to understand when you go deep with God. Not only in Christ I have the highest purpose, but in Christ I have the greatest truth. I not only have the highest purpose that one can possibly have in life, but in Christ I have the, the greatest truth that anyone can possibly know. Now in the next four verses, Paul addresses those in the church who are discontent because they think they know better. They know what they were taught in Sunday school, but they've gone to university and now all that seems pretty naive. And the the professors were really smart and taught that the things they, they learned were, were not so much as they had been led to believe, or they've decided that, well, Jesus can't be the only way to God, and so maybe this religion has a little truth, and that religion has a little truth, and we'll mix in some new age spirituality, and before long, all this starts to find its way into their thinking, and, and what they're teaching and preaching doesn't sound much like the faith handed down by the apostles to all the saints anymore. Uh, and, you know, this is happening in our contemporary setting. People are impatient with those who still believe all that old stuff. And so in denominations where, you know, it used to be that the pastor would lead the congregation every week in the Apostles' Creed. You know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, that, that whole thing. Now, instead of leading them in the Apostles' Creed, they're leading their congregations in something called the, the Sparkle Creed. Uh, look it up on YouTube. It's really bizarre. They're impatient with those who still believe all that old stuff. They're discontent that the church isn't keeping up with the times. Their complaint and their discontent is, I know better, or we know better now. Paul has a pretty harsh assessment of those who manifest this kind of discontent. Look what he says in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and there he probably means the gospel itself as well as the, the actual teachings of Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, the moral teaching that goes along with all of that. If somebody teaches something other than that, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. If someone teaches, for instance, that Jesus was a great teacher, but not really God the Son, or that his death did not atone for your sin, or that 
He may not have actually risen from the dead, as you've been led to think, if they teach that the gospel is merely that God loves you and wants you to love your authentic self. If they teach that the Bible is riddled with errors and you get to decide for yourself what your truth is. Your old pastor, bless his heart, didn't really have a clue and your Sunday school teacher got it all wrong. Paul's assessment of such folks is that they are puffed up with conceit. They act like they know better than anyone, but in reality, they don't know what they're talking about. Paul says, how's that working for you? Where does that kind of intellectual arrogance get you? He says in verse 4, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You know, false teaching abounds these days. Nothing that the church has accepted as settled truth for the last 2,000 years is safe. Everything is open for reinterpretation. Not necessarily out of intellectual honesty, but because we simply don't want to do what it says anymore. So we talk ourselves into believing that it never really meant what the church for 2,000 years has understood it to mean. Lee Strobel uses the following illustration to highlight the, the moral rebellion that makes clear truths of Scripture much more ambiguous than they are. Here's how he puts it. Imagine a daughter and her boyfriend going out for a Coke on a school night. The father says to her, you must be home before 11. It gets to be 1045. And the two of them are still having a great time. They don't want the evening to end, so suddenly they begin having difficulty interpreting the father's instructions. What did he really mean when he said, you must be home before 11? Did he literally mean us? Or was he talking about you in general, in a general sense, like people in general? Was he saying, in effect, as a general rule, people must be home before 11? Or was he just making the observation that generally people are in their homes before 11? I mean, he wasn't very clear, was he? And what did he mean by you must be home before 11? Would a loving father be so adamant and inflexible? He probably means it as a suggestion. I know he loves me, so he, isn't it implicit that he wants me to have a good time, and if I'm having fun, and that, that he would want me, he wouldn't want me to end the evening so soon. And what did he mean by you must be home before 11? He didn't specify who's home. <laughs> Could be anybody's home. Maybe he meant it figuratively. Remember the old saying, home is where the heart is? Well, my heart is right here, so doesn't that mean I'm already home? And what did he really mean when he said, you must be home before 11? Did he mean that in an exact literal sense? Besides, he never specified 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. <laughs> and he wasn't really clear on whether he was talking about Central Standard Time or Eastern Standard Time. In Hawaii, it's only quarter to seven. As a matter of fact, it's always before 11 somewhere. So with all these ambiguities, we can't really be sure what he meant at all. If he can't make himself more clear, we certainly can't be held responsible. You know, these days you're finding clergy doing that kind of deconstructing of Scripture all over the place. And what do you get? Paul says you're going to get controversy and quarrels and dissension and friction, people of a depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And this is why you have churches and whole denominations breaking apart. It happened to the Episcopalians some years ago, and then it happened to the Lutherans, and this year it's happening to the Methodists. Why? 
because many are not content with what they've been taught, the historic faith handed down once for all to the saints. They've decided they know better than what the church has historically taught. They've rewritten the gospel and turned the church's moral teachings upside down. And somebody says, oh man, Dave, I didn't know you were such an anti-intellectual. You know, it's not that. I was a philosophy major in college. I studied Wittgenstein, Bultmann, Schleiermacher, and Kierkegaard, and a whole bunch of other dead guys with four-syllable last names. <laughs> I've got a master's degree that required me to study widely in theology and even oriental religious philosophy. I've got a doctorate. I've been the dean of a seminary faculty populated with people who had widely divergent points of view, but I have never found truth greater than the simple gospel my mother shared with me as a four-year-old sitting on her lap. And I have never found a more satisfying way to live than to take God at his word and strive to please him. For all that I've studied, nothing makes more sense to me or matters more to me than that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. I, for one, am content in the realization that in Christ I have the greatest truth of all. You know, Karl Barth was regarded as the greatest theologian of the 20th century. And he once gave uh, an address at the Rockefeller Chapel on the campus of the University of Chicago. It was April 23rd of 1962. And there were a number of people there who reported on this that happened on that occasion. There was a Q&A that took place after he gave his learned address. And one of the students asked him, Dr. Bart, if you could summarize your theology in a single sentence, what would it be? And as the story goes, Bart responded by saying, <clears throat> in the words of a song I learned on my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. You know what the scripture says, Jesus himself says that unless you have faith like a child, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. And I hate to tell you, but there are a lot of people that are overthinking it these days. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Those who are truly content go deep with God. When I go deep with God, I, I come to recognize that in Christ I have the highest purpose and in Christ I have the greatest truth. I have the highest purpose that one could ever have. I have the greatest truth that one could ever know. And then the third realization that I come to when I go deep with God is that in Christ I have all that I need. In Christ I have all that I need in this world. In verse five, Paul mentions some of the false teachers who saw their their brand of spirituality is a path to financial gain. I guess the modern version of that would be the prosperity gospel folks who promise that if you practice their brand of Christianity, you will have health and you will have wealth. And Paul counters with, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's where it's at. The greatest prophet to be realized in all of life, the richest person of all, is the one who goes deep with God and finds their contentment in him, because, as he says in verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. You came into this world empty-handed, you're going to leave empty-handed. Paul says in several places in his letter, so I've learned to be content, whether I have a lot or, or just a little. I've, I've learned to be content with almost nothing. 
I've learned to be content with whatever I have because I have the Lord. And he promises never to leave me nor forsake me. When I have food and clothing and, and Jesus, I have all that I need. See, when you don't know the contentment that comes from going deep with God, that's when you start getting into trouble. As verse 9 says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who desire to be rich, that's speaking of those who are, who are discontent with what they have. They feel like they're being cheated and they want more and, and they make it their settled policy to pursue wealth. Well, when you do that, Paul says, you fall into temptation. And the principal temptation you fall into is to neglect your walk with God for the sake of chasing money. You fall into a snare, he says. You become trapped by your material desires, you know, chasing more and more. And, and then after you get some of what you want, you have to get even more to fix the things that broke. And, and then you have to spend more uh, to, to, you know, kind of make time to, to enjoy all those things that you bought. And, and the more you do that, the more it takes you away from God. And after a while, you can't see anymore how your greed is driving you down a path of self-destruction. It, it, it takes you into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For, he says in verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I think a lot of us know people in our own personal lives who once seemed to be walking with Jesus, but now they're nowhere to be found because they got all caught up in the material thing and, and, and they're chasing the dollar. There was a famous gathering of eight wealthy, powerful men that took place in 1923 at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. That at the time, it was Chicago's swankiest hotel. And this confab of these eight powerful men was touted as, as a, a real, like a, an incredible meeting of these powerful, rich men, meeting of the minds. And that gathering included, it was reported, the president of the largest independent steel company, the president of the largest utility company, the president of the largest oil company, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, a prominent Wall Street broker, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, and the president of an international bank. That's a lot of power, a lot of wealth. Well, 25 years later, Somebody was thinking about that great event and they did a retrospective and decided to look up, well, where are all those powerful, wealthy men today? And what they discovered was, 25 years later, that one had died bankrupt, one died in exile having fled indictment, two had spent time in jail, and three had died by suicide. Now, it, it's possible, of course, to have money without loving it. And I've known many people down through the years in ministry, people who love Jesus most of all and saw their money as a way of blessing others and advancing God's work. The problem is when you love money most of all and drift away from Jesus, you think that contentment will be yours if you have just a little more. And a little more never turns out to be quite enough. Your money doesn't buy the happiness you thought it would when you could have had Jesus all along and found in him all that you need. How much better it is to live as Hebrews 13.5 encourages us. 
Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he, the Lord, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, when you go deep with God, you'll find that you have all that you need, even if all you have is the clothes on your back and the food on your table and Jesus. Look, this contentment may be the mood of our times, but let us who know Jesus give off a different vibe. When the world gripes, I deserve better, may we rest content in realizing that we already have the highest purpose that one can ever have in all of life to bring God glory and to love our neighbor. And when the world gripes, I know better, or we know better now, may we rest content in realizing that we have the greatest truth that one could ever have. Jesus loves me and gave himself for me. And when the world gripes, I want more, I deserve more, may we rest content that in Jesus, we have all that we need, an unfailing provider who will never leave us nor forsake us. May we radiate the true contentment that comes from going deep with God. Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful and convicting sometimes, and sometimes it's like holding up a a mirror and we see ourselves in it. And some of us came in here today feeling mighty discontent in some aspect of life or other. Lord, the instruction of your word is so beautiful and so clear. Let us not be hearers only, but those who hear your word and put it into practice in our lives. May we seek our contentment in you, Lord God, and in your son, our Lord Jesus, who gave his life for us as a ransom, delivering us from the guilt and grip of sin. May our lives be lived in gratitude and dependence upon that one who promises never to leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, may we cling to that simple truth that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us to rescue us from our sin. May all of our lives be lived in gratitude and dependence upon the Lord Jesus Thank you for giving your life for us, that you might give your life to us, that, Lord Jesus, you would live your life through us. May we be living examples of those who exude the likeness of Christ and who celebrate the goodness of our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake.